It is officially 2019, and we are kicking off our um, New Year sermon series. And I know a lot of you probably are big on uh, resolutions. Raise your hand if you made a New Year's resolution. Raise your hand if you are still keeping it. Good job, guys. There are four of you that made it and three of you that are keeping it. I don't even try anymore because I just feel bad by January 2nd. But here's the thing. Resolutions are all fine and good. There's nothing wrong with a resolution. A resolution, though, is infinitely weak. So I I don't mean to mock your resolutions. I'm going to ask you to reframe, maybe, and for myself to reframe. Because a resolution is saying that on my own power and in my own strength, I resolve that I will march forward in a different mindset, in a different attitude. I will behave differently. I will pull myself up by my bootstraps. I will gird myself. I will march forward with resolve. And that's fine and good. But things that happen in your own strength will always falter. Things that happen in your own strength will always fall short. And I am as guilty of this as anybody, that I make commitments to myself, that I will do these and I won't do these and I will act this way and I will be careful. But ultimately, unless those are bathed in the power of the Holy Spirit, unless I am asking God to do for me what I can't do, unless it's an activity and an endeavor of faith, it will ultimately fall short. So I'm asking you, if you are a resolution maker or if you decided not to this year, I am going to ask you to make a kind of resolution for the year 2019. But it's not a resolution in your own power. It's a resolution to commit to the power that God gives you. It's a resolution to commit to a life of ridiculous faith. And, and that's, that's what we're going to focus on throughout the entirety of the year. And it's what our sermon series as we kick off the year is about. We're going to be looking in the book of Daniel, and we're going to be looking at Daniel's life, and we're going to be looking at what it would take to live a life of ridiculous faith. Ridiculous faith is faith that does not seem normal. It's faith that the rest of the world would look at, and they would say, what in the world is wrong with you? A ridiculous faith is faith that will only make sense to people that are as sold out on Jesus Christ as you are. A ridiculous faith is even so extreme, listen to me now because this is dangerous, a ridiculous faith is even so extreme that other Christians may look at you and tell you to knock it off. A ridiculous faith is so extreme that other Christians, other well-meaning Christians may look at you and tell you to tone it down. But the reality is this. It's impossible to please God without faith. Hebrews tells us that. Hebrews Hebrews 11 tells us that it's impossible to please God without faith. And so we are going to be on a journey to have ridiculous faith. Daniel is going to be our catalyst for talking about this. But listen to me. Listen to me. I've told you this before. You have every advantage that Daniel didn't have. Daniel knew about the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit, Christian, living inside of you. It is time for us to be known as a church that lives with ridiculous faith. It is time for me to be known as your pastor, as a guy who lives with ridiculous faith. It is time for you to be known as a wife, as a mother, as a husband, as a father, as an individual of ridiculous faith. 
this is the way that it works. This is the way we move forward as a church. This is the way we make a difference in our community. We keep talking about the fact that hell is real. We keep talking about the fact that people that we love and know are going there. We keep talking about the fact that we aren't playing church, but that we are really on a mission that's going to do something really critically important. And the only way that that happens is if we live a life of ridiculous faith. And so that's, that's what we're about, and that's what we do. And, and, and I want to clarify before we get too far um, into this sermon series uh, that what faith is and what faith isn't. Really, there are two kinds of faith that I want us to focus on today, just briefly. There's faith that describes um, our position in Christ. And then there is faith that identifies the condition with which we live. Our position in Christ as Christians is secure. You are saved by grace through faith when you believed. You can't take credit for this. The reason this is so critical is because when I talk about living a life of ridiculous faith, what I want you to hear is that you will risk for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ. What I don't want you to hear is that when you risk for the sake of the gospel, that somehow that makes you acceptable to God. You are acceptable to God simply because you have chosen to believe in and on Jesus Christ, the one God sent who was sacrificed for your sins, who was resurrected to defeat death. When you believe in Jesus Christ and when you trust and follow Jesus Christ, you have experienced this new position in the family of God. That's all there is to it. What you do or don't do has nothing to do with it. This is what this says. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done. So none of you can boast about it. I can't boast about it. When I do something great for God, guess what? I don't get to brag about that. It doesn't elevate my standing before God. It doesn't make God like me more. It doesn't make God forgive me more. God loves me and God accepts me, and God has adopted me into his family simply because I was saved by his grace when I believed. We've described it this way before, that it is like a straw. And the milkshake, cake batter, nice. I said to Carrie, hey, I need a shake this morning. I could have used a cup of water, (laughs) but I didn't want to. So, deal with that. This is the grace that God offers. Actually, this is a cake batter milkshake. Work with me. This is the grace that God offers. It is free, and it is available, and it is awesome. It is everything. It's the gift of salvation given through the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of you as the propitiation for your sin, as the reconciler, as the redeemer. This is the faith that it takes to draw it out. It's there. It exists. And there are people that will tell you that just because Christ came and just because Christ died and just because Christ was resurrected, you are good to go whether you choose to believe and accept him or not. And I'm here to tell you that is, um, can I say crap in church? I'm going to say it. That's crap because it's not in here. It doesn't exist. 
in Scripture. Salvation comes by grace through faith. I only enjoy this if I'm willing to use the straw to draw it out. I only experience the gift of God's grace when I use faith to draw it under myself. Let's see how this works for a second. Yeah, it works. All right, here you go. You get the point, though, right? She, she's like, I got a soccer game. I can't eat after. It's at, six, it's at 4 o'clock. Six hours. Here's the point. Here's the point. When you have faith in Jesus Christ, the one whom God sent, then you experience this thing called salvation. It is yours. You are adopted into the family of God. First John tells us what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. Anyone who has the Son has the Father. That's the way that it works. Salvation by grace through faith. That is the position that you have in Christ. But what we're talking about, what Daniel demonstrates, what ridiculous faith is, is not the position that you have. We get the position. Hopefully we understand that. But it's the condition of our lives. See, because here's the deal. If you are going to be a Christian that is marked by ridiculous faith, what you're going to be is you are going to be known as a man of faith. You're going to be known as a woman of faith. And you and I both know this. There are plenty of Christians that exist, people that really, truly trust Jesus Christ for their salvation, who are not known as men and women of faith. But if we are truly going to be known as men and women of faith, then we are going to have to, we are going to, have to understand the condition of a saved life. And the condition of a saved life is a life that works for the sake of the gospel that saved it. But it's a different kind of work than you're thinking of. See, there's two kinds of works. There is a faith works and there is a flesh works. And a faith works is the fruit of a saved life. The flesh works is decay and death. When you work from your flesh because you have to, because you need to, you get tired, you get exhausted, you get burned out, and, and you feel miserable. When you work from the overflow of a heart that is surrendered in faith, then you are energized and you are excited. And yes, you'll get tired. And yes, you might get run down at times. And yes, you might need times of, uh, of, of Sabbath and refreshment, but... Ultimately, your soul is encouraged. We have people here. Listen, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just be as bluntly honest with you as I can. We have people here that operate out of flesh work. When you operate out of flesh work and you volunteer at church, you're tired and you complain. That's how we know, right? That, that's how we know when somebody volunteers out of just obligation because they're tired and they complain. Somebody that volunteers out of an overflow of faith, they just do. And, and you look at them and you're like, man, how do they do all of that? But they're not tired. They don't complain. Instead, their soul is refreshed. And they may need seasons of Sabbath and they may need seasons of break, but they're refreshed. It's what their heart desires to do because out of the overflow of their salvation comes their good works. That's what James talks about when he says faith without works is dead. Because and you, as you are in the position 
of the family of God, the overflow of that position is the works that come from your faith. Okay, and so as we get into this text today, as we get into Daniel and we spend the next six weeks working through the book of Daniel, um, I hope what you're going to see um, is that, I hope what you're going to see is that in Daniel's life, what seems counterintuitive to us was normal for him. What seems scary, what seems dangerous, what seems reckless to those outside of the life of faith, to Daniel seems like another day at the office. Okay, and so we are going to methodically work through this. Uh, I do want to tell you this, that um, in anticipation of our our um, affirmation vote and our merger with Revolution Church, um, because that's a faith endeavor like none else, man. This is something that the rest of the world would look at and say, man, that doesn't make worldly sense. Why would you do that? Well, we're doing it because we feel like we're, calling, we're following God's leading and God's prompting, and we're going where he tells us to go. And the reality is this, is that it's scary at times. It takes ridiculous faith. And so Revolution is actually working through the same text and the same sermon series. So as we talk about ridiculous faith for the next six weeks, they'll be doing the same. Um, and there will be a week, you'll find out more about this on Tuesday at the annual meeting, there will be a week where since we're preaching the same text and we're following the same sermon series, um, where David and I just swap and he'll be here and I'll be there. And, and there may be some weeks where we're all together. I'm not sure how all that will play out yet. We'll talk more Tuesday, but, but there are some things that we're going to be doing, but we're all going through this together. So let's jump in, and we're talking about Daniel. So Daniel 1 um, through 21 is the text that we're dealing with. And during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem, and he besieged it. The Lord gave him victory and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God, and he, Nebuchadnezzar, placed them in the treasure house of his God, small g God, his false God, his um, idol, his enemy that he worshipped. And so what this is, is this is uh, Daniel starting off this book, uh, this letter, this record that he kept. This is Daniel starting this off, and he says, hey, um, during the third year that King Jehoiakim was reigning in Judah, um, God had had enough. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem. He besieged it. He beat it into the ground. He conquered it. God gave Nebuchadnezzar victory. See, here's, here's what I want you to understand. From the outside looking in, what this will look like to the rest of the world is that God was embarrassed, that God was defeated. What this will look like to the rest of the world is that Jehovah, Yahweh, Israel's God, was less powerful than Babylon's God. Because that's the way things were viewed at that point in time. Uh, it was viewed with, if I could defeat you in military conquest, that my God was more powerful than you. The world power before Babylon came on the scene was the Assyrians. The Assyrians worshipped gods, many gods. They, they worshipped fake gods. They worshipped themselves. They worshipped a lot of things. Um, and when the Assyrians were the world power, they would conquer. Um, and how they conquered was they would wipe you out. They would kill the most prominent and the most powerful. They would leave the weakest, the most downtrodden. Then they would send in other people from other areas that they had conquered to intermarry. And they would basically try to wipe out your race. 
That's how the Assyrians conquered. The Babylonians came along, and they had different gods, and they defeated the Assyrians, and they became the world power, and so everybody would assume that the Babylonian gods were more powerful than the Assyrian gods. But the one true God, Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, is, is there, and he has held them safe. He has held them safe, but now, because of their disobedience, because of what's happened, he has said, you know what, I am going to bring discipline onto my people. It goes all the way back to the Mosaic Covenant. God um, gives this to Moses way back before they enter the Promised Land. Go back and read Deuteronomy way back before they enter the Promised Land, way back at the beginning. God says, here's what's going to happen. If you follow my commandments, I will bless the crud out of you. I will give you everything you will never want, you will never suffer, no one will ever be able to come against you, no one will raise a hand against you, everyone will recognize you as my people. But if you don't, if you get comfortable and you get cozy and you decide you don't have to follow my commandments anymore, then here's what's going to happen. I am going to bring the hurt against you. Not because I hate you, but because I need to discipline you. Because I am what's good for you. And if you walk away from me, then it is going to come against you. In fact, we read about that in Jeremiah. When Jeremiah, and the prophet Jeremiah, um, is a contemporary of what's going to happen here. Um, and, and early in his ministry, God is, is talking to Jeremiah. And he's saying, hey, Jeremiah, the thing that I've been warning them about for centuries, for generations, guess what? It's about to happen. So in Jeremiah 1, when God calls Jeremiah to ministry, this is what he says. The Lord spoke to me, Jeremiah, and he asked, what do you see now? He's giving him visions. And Jeremiah replied, I see a pot of boiling water spilling from the north. Well, guess what's north? Babylon. I see a pot of boiling water spilling from the north. Yes, the Lord said, for terror from the north will boil out on the people of this land. And if we continue in that text, it's because God says, I am done. I'm done asking, I'm done encouraging, I'm done sending prophets that they kill because they don't want to hear what they have to say. Now, he goes on and he says, but there will come a day when I will bring them home and I will restore them and I will be their God and they will be my children and I will write my law in their hearts. So, so God always promises that there will be a time of redemption, but that's not what's happening in Daniel 1. In Daniel 1, what's happening is God is, is allowing Israel to be defeated. And Daniel gets taken. Here, here, here's, we, we keep going. Let me, let me read for you. Well, there, there's a lot of text. It's not all on the screen, so you can flip to Daniel 1. But let me, let me read for you in 3 through 7 how this plays out. See, because I told you the Assyrians, they conquered and they wiped out. Babylon, they had a different assimilation strategy. Their strategy was actually um, cutting edge at the time. Because what Nebuchadnezzar knew was that, you know what? Even though I can defeat you, it doesn't mean you're worthless. Right? The fact that you exist as a nation must mean that you have some things going on for you. So what Babylon would do is they would go in and they would find the smartest and the best looking and the brightest. And, and, and what they would do is they would take you and they would make you one of their own. And so in doing that, they would weaken the country that they were defeating because they've taken the best and brightest away from you. And they would strengthen themselves because they've taken the best and the brightest and they've made you become Babylonian. They've adopted you into their way of life. And if you 
met the cut, then they would let you live and become part of that culture. If you didn't, then they would just kill you and be done with you. Um, and so that's what they did. They would take people. It's called the deportation. They would take people with them. Daniel and his four friends that we're going to read about were part of the group that was taken. Okay, let me read for you here in 3 to 7 how it worked. Then the king ordered Alphazaz, sure, why not, his chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong healthy, good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. So that's why when we think about Daniel, we think about those. We think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, that's not actually their names, right? But this is what he does. He says, select only the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, right? Make sure they've got everything going for them that they are pure, they are without defect, right? Make sure that they're smart. Make sure they're not idiots. We don't want idiots weakening us as a nation. We want the best and we want the brightest. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, right? They got trouble in school, we don't want them. Make sure that they can hold their own. Then, Here's what happens. When you make sure that they're gifted with knowledge and judgment and they're suited to serve in the royal palace, you take these men, you set them off to the side, and you train them for three years. You train them basically like we would missionaries. You teach them the the language. You teach them the culture. You teach them everything they need to know to be excellent advisors in this empire. And that's what they did. And they took them, and the first thing they did was they tried to beat every Jewish thing out of them. Every marker that tied them to Yahweh, the God of the universe, they tried to tear away from them. It starts with the renaming. Daniel's name means God is my judge. The name he was given, Belshazzar, means keeper of the treasure of Baal. Hananiah's name means Yahweh is gracious. And he was changed to Shadrach, means the commander of the moon god. I'm sorry, not the commander, at the command of the moon god. Michel, his name simply means this. Who is like God? Who? He was called Meshach. was named after the goddess, Shak. And Azariah, Yahweh is my helper, was called Abednego after the fire god. So, Everything about these four men that connected them to the God of the universe. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'll take them and I'll train them and I will make them mine. But first to make them mine, I need to make them unholy. To make them mine, I need to strip away anything that connects them to the God of the universe. Because there is not one true God of the universe Nebuchadnezzar says. There is not one true God of the universe. Nebuchadnezzar says there are many gods and oh, by the way, I'm one of them. And they're not going to worship that God. I want them to worship my gods, and I want them to worship me. And if they're going to be useful to me, this is where it starts. 
And so what happens is Daniel and his friends are taken from their homes. They're moved to another country. They're spared. And all of the sudden, they're put in a palace where they should be able to live the good life. Instead of, instead of being stamped out and stomped out or being left in ruins or in, in, instead of being put in a concentration camp or a prisoner camp and being fed rations, they're put in a palace. They're given someone to oversee their welfare. You better treat them well because they belong to the king. And they're given meat and wine from the king's table. And I got to be honest with you. I'm imagining that the, the ruler of the known universe at the time ate well that he had everything he wanted. And he says, you know what? Give it to these four men because I want them to be fit for my service. There's a problem with the stuff they were asked to eat, though. The stuff they were asked to eat, because it was from the table, which means from the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, um, that it had been ritually sacrificed and dedicated to a God that was not the God of the universe. It was unclean. It was food that by Jewish law they weren't allowed to eat. And so Daniel's in, in a, at a point, and, and he's wrestling with this simple thing here of, do I eat it? Or do I refuse? Because if he eats it, basically what happens is he's surrendering. If he refuses, basically what's happening is he's surrendering. Daniel is in an official, and his friends are in an official no-win situation. And the reason they can't win is because if they eat what the king is providing, they're turning their back on their God. If they refuse to eat what the king is providing, they're turning their back on the only person that thinks they're useful. And they'll be treated just like everybody else. But Daniel says, Daniel's determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. And he asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. So here, here's what happens. Daniel, Daniel says, okay, I, I see what's going on here and I don't want to eat what you're giving me. And so he asks permission. He's like, look, chief of staff, um, Azariah, whatever that guy's name was, he's like, hey, look, here's the deal. Um, I'd really like it if I didn't have to eat that. He's like, you know what? Carrots are good. Potatoes are good. I like water. Bring me that stuff that's clean. Bring me the stuff from the ground. Bring me the stuff from the garden, the stuff that hasn't um, been considered unclean by God's law, the stuff that hasn't been dedicated to a false god, the stuff that hasn't been worshipped, whatever it is. Bring me the good stuff. I'll eat that stuff. You leave this stuff away from me. Please let me do this. It seems like a fair request for Daniel to make. Um, I'm sure that drove other people nuts. Can you imagine some of the other Jewish people that were in the same boat? Because Daniel and his, his three friends, they weren't the only ones that were taken. They're the only ones we read about. You ever get that? They're not the only ones that were taken. They're the only ones that we know about. They're the only ones we know about, assuming, because they were the ones that were faithful. See, Daniel knows something here. He knows that if he compromises which would be easy to do. I mean, it looks like his God was just defeated soundly, right? Not just the people, but Nebuchadnezzar and his armies went into God's temple, took the, the sacred articles that were used to worship God, 
took them and took them back to their own God's temple and threw them in there and said, what was your God's is now my God's. And Yahweh let it happen. And so Daniel and his friends are sitting here and it would be very easy for them to say, you know what? God lost this one. Our God got defeated. This God won. This king likes us for some reason and he's given us another chance. So we're going to go with it. It would have been easy for them to think that. I guarantee you there were other Jews that were taken that were thinking that. There were other Jews that went along to get along. They said, you know what? We'll take it. Yes, thank you for being gracious to us. We will eat your food and we will drink your wine and that is all there is to it. We are going to be happily Babylonian now because we don't want to die. But Daniel, Daniel says no. But here's the deal. It would take great faith to say, hey, wait, I don't want to defile myself by eating this food. It's fine for you right? But it's not good enough for me. And so I want to eat something else. That takes great faith to do that. But here's, here's what happens. Um, it doesn't go well, right? He says, um, no, 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 no. The chief of staff, please give me permission to eat these um, unacceptable foods, not to eat these unacceptable foods and to eat something else. Um, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel but it wasn't enough. He responded, no, 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 no. And he responds with good reason in his own reasoning. He says, no, I can't do that. I can't do that because my Lord, the King, Nebuchadnezzar, who's ordered you to eat this food, right? When you become pale and sick because you're not eating well, he's going to look at you after three years and he's going to say, something went wrong here and someone has to pay. You're going to become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, and I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Seems like a great guy, doesn't he? He's like, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. But Daniel spoke with the attendant. So, so here's what happens. Daniel talks to the guy. He talks to the man. And he says to the man, hey, help me out here. Don't make me do this. And the man says, do it. Right? Daniel, though, digs in. Instead of saying, okay, I tried. How easy is it? How many times have you... You wanted to be strong in faith, right? You wanted to be strong in faith. And so you said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to be strong in faith. And then you try to be strong in faith and somehow it doesn't work out. And you're like, well, I tried. I gave my best shot, right? I I said I was going to start tithing. I started tithing and then I got a flat tire and I had to get two new tires and that's expensive. I tried, but I can't do it, right? I said I was going to forgive. I said I was going to forgive. I decided to forgive and then they made me mad. I can't do it. You know, I said I was going to try to control my temper. I said I was going to stop doing it. And then, you know what? This thing happened that made me so angry, I can't do it. Right? I tried. We give ourselves all kinds of credit for trying, for taking resolution steps. Right? For making it three or four days. Like, I said I was going to stop eating carbs. And then there was pizza. Can't do it. Guys, the struggle is real. This is what it is, though. It happens. And, and we take steps. But Daniel, see, this is, this is where this goes from regular faith to ridiculous faith. Regular faith is good. Ridiculous faith. Ridiculous faith says, I don't care. What it looks like, I don't care what the odds are. I don't care how impossible it seems. Track this now. Ridiculous faith says, I don't care if it costs me my whole life. 
I am sticking with God. The only place ridiculous faith works is in the God of the universe. You can have ridiculous faith in me as your pastor. And unfortunately, I might let you down. You can have ridiculous faith in your parents, but they're human and they may let you down. You can have ridiculous faith in your spouse, but he's human and he may let you down. Where ridiculous faith works is when it's in the God of the universe because the God of the universe does not fail. And that is what we are gonna see littered, littered throughout the text in this sermon series, that ridiculous faith works when it's in the God of the universe who does not fail. His yes is yes, his no is no, and he does not fail. He will never let you down. And so this continues. Daniel, um, he asks, um, he spoke with the attendant who'd been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel. So he does this on the side, right? Like chief of staff says, no, man, you got to eat the food because the king will cut my head off. So Daniel's like, all right, I got you. And he talks to this guy over here. He's like, look, we got a problem. Here's basically what he says. If I have to eat that, I'm going to refuse. I'm going to die. You're going to die. Because you're in charge of me, I'm going to die. That, you know, you're not going to force feed me. I'm going to starve because I'm not going to eat it. You either let me have faith in my God. You let me practice my faith in my God. You let me obey my God or I'm done anyway. And so the attendant makes him a deal. Daniel says, so here, let's do this, right? Please test me, test my friends. Here you wonder, what, what are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thinking about all of this, right? They're like, well, time out, Daniel. Let's Let's talk about this first. Let's, let's have a conversation. Uh, you'll notice they're not the ones going, go get it, Daniel. Although I think we'll find out in chapter three, they agree with him, right? We're gonna read more about them in chapter three and they are definitely going to agree with him. But, but, but here's the deal. He says, test us for 10 days. Give us vegetables, right? Um, and, and give us water. And at the end of 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food, okay? Now, this is not a text that proves that being vegan is more healthy. Believe you me, I've had that argument. Right? Talk about proof texting. And by the way, if that were the case, it would take the miraculous faith out of the equation. Because what that would be telling us is Daniel was a better nutritionist than all of the other people, and that's what the story is about. No, no, no. What this story is about is that it makes no earthly sense. It makes no earthly sense that Daniel eating vegetables and drinking water for 10 days would look more healthy and stronger than the men eating protein and meat and wine from the king's table, right? It's also not a knock on wine. They drink wine in the Bible. Don't, like, don't make this something it's not. This is about the miraculous movement of God, right? Because something that should not be, Daniel says, I'm willing to bet my life and the life of my three friends that it is going to be. I am willing to bet my life, I'm willing to bet their lives that the God of the universe is going to step up and he is going to do something supernaturally so that I, even though I'm eating a substandard diet, am going to be healthier and stronger than all of the other men that are doing exactly what they shouldn't be doing. And so he puts his cards on the table and he says, I am all in on this bet. Let's see what happens. And, and the guy agrees, right? Right? The, the, he agrees, and so they test him, 
And that's the way that it works. And the attendant goes along with it, um, probably because God has given Daniel favor. um, And that's just the way that this works. But basically what's happening is Daniel is sure that he's not going to compromise. Read this. Galatians 6, 7, and 8, Paul writes this. Don't be misled. You can't mock the justice of God. You'll always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. This is, to Daniel, this is a no-brainer. Daniel knows something, and here's the truth I need you to understand, because the world will tell you differently, church. The world is going to tell you differently. The world has probably already told you differently. Maybe the world has convinced you to believe differently and got you sucked into this, but it's not too late for you to back out. It's not for late, too late for you to see it right. Here, here's the deal. This is what you need to know. Get this. Daniel knows, and we need to know, that you can never be elevated by ignoring God. Ignoring God and going your own way to satisfy your own cravings to do what's easiest will never elevate you. Ultimately, it will bring you low. That's what Paul says here. Don't be misled. You can't mock the justice of God. You can't get along to go along or go along to get along or whichever way it says. You, you can't do that. You can't, you can't just run after something that seems pleasurable, that seems easy, that seems like it'll be good. You can't run after that thing that God says no to just because it promises something that you think is going to be great. Because ultimately, you will harvest what you plant. You will reap what you sow. It's that simple. And if you sow in disobedience, then guess what? You will harvest justice. Those who live only to satisfy their sinful nature, guess what? They will harvest death and decay from that sinful nature. See, Daniel knows this. Daniel knows this weird truth, right? Daniel knows that his faith is his identity. This is ridiculous faith. His faith is his identity. So if he compromises his faith with sin, guess what? He ceases to be. I mean, think about what it would be like to be known as that person, that you live such a life of faith, that you are so in on God, that you are so committed to following the God of the universe, that if you stopped following God, that you would stop being you. That if you stepped out on God in sin, that people would say, I don't even know you anymore. That's who Daniel is, and he knows it. And his faith is so confident, so ridiculous that he says, you know what? If I have to die to be obedient, then guess what? I choose death. And that's what it comes down to for him. If I have to die to be obedient, then guess what? I choose death. And it is the faith. We have to decide, listen, we're going to wrap this up, I know, because we're starting to linger. What happened is the thing didn't get turned on. So for all I know, I've been preaching for 20 minutes. And I still got 20 more left. I suspect that's wrong. But whatever. What I don't know can't hurt me. It could hurt you. But it's a matter of faith. And here, here's my quick question is, is I know you have faith. It, well, I don't know all of you. But I believe that most of you, you're here today. You're here for a reason. I believe that most of you have faith. But let me ask you this. Do you really have faith? 
It's been my experience in my own life and in talking with others that most of us operate from a deficit kind of a faith. And the deficit in our faith is simply this. We feel like if we don't do our part, if we don't have everything that we think we need, if we don't have every advantage, humanly speaking, we feel like there's no way God can hold up his end. But Daniel demonstrates something different. Daniel says, you know what? My God is the God of ridiculous. My God is the God of the universe. My God is the God of the impossible. If my God wants me to live, then guess what? Even though I drank water and ate carrots, my God is going to make me big and strong and healthy, healthier than everybody else who ate what they were supposed to. And that is what it is. If my God wants me to forgive, then no matter what feeling pops into my heart today, my God will stomp it out. My God wants me to give generously. So no matter what obstacle gets in my way of giving generously, my God will meet it and then some. My God wants me to, to do this. Even though it seems hard, he'll come through. My God wants me to go there and serve in that ministry. And even though I'm not sure what it'll be like, you know what, I'm gonna do it and, and he's gonna meet that need. Whatever it is, it's that faith that God will come through. And if he doesn't come through, we're sunk. But guess what? We're not sunk because God always comes through. And the question that we have to deal with, the thing that we have to wrestle with is, do we really believe that kind of faith? Ken Davis um, is a comedian. I think maybe I've told you this before, but Ken Davis told the story of when he was in college and, and he was in a public speaking class in a persuasive class. And so he had to persuasively argue and not argue, but teach something scientific um, to the point where the class believed that it was true and they understood it. And if they understood it and believed it, then he would um, get an A. And if he couldn't communicate it effectively enough that they couldn't understand it, or they weren't convinced that he was right, that he would not pass. And so um, his job, and they drew it out of a, a hat, his, his job was to teach the law of the pendulum. So he gets up there and, and, and he stands up and, and he explains the law of the pendulum and that the law of the pendulum is that... that um, when you, when you pull the pendulum and you let it go, that it will never come back further. It'll never come back further than the point that it started, but that it will continue to diminish until it eventually stops, right? But if I release it here, it'll never come back to here because it doesn't have that kind of mass and momentum. It will always come back less and less. And so he explains scientifically the law of the pendulum. He uses this little model on the desk to show it. And the class is like, okay, we get it. And the professor, assuming he's done, stands up and says, good job, Ken. And Ken says, wait, I have one more example. Professor reluctantly sits back down and says, fine, hurry up. Um, he says, I need a volunteer. Professor, how about you? Um, okay, whatever. So he has the professor stand against the wall. And he has rigged in the center of the room a 50-pound weight on parachute cable. And so the professor stands against the wall, and, and Davis brings the weight back about this far from his face. And he says, now, according to the law of the pendulum, if he stays flat against the wall, this will not hit him in the face. He asked the class, do you believe the law of the pendulum? Yep. He asked his professor, Sure. He lets it go. And it swings all the way to this side of the room. And it slowly comes to a stop at the arc. And then it swings back. And just before it gets to where it should have stopped, the professor just dives out of the way. 
And so he asked the question, well, you know, did he really believe the law of the pendulum? And the answer was unequivocally, no, he did not. Your faith is like that. You either believe it or you don't. It's either real or it's not. God is who he says he is or God is not. We tend to operate as Christians in this culture, we tend to operate in this area where we know, but we don't believe. Or we know, but we don't let it show. And the reality is, it's either real or it's not. For Daniel, it was real. I'm just real quick going to go through these last slides with you. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who'd been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided to the others. So Daniel was successful, which means in this story, weirdly, Daniel gets to eat vegetables and water for three more years. So, yay Daniel. Um, God gave these four men. Now listen, God gave... Listen, oh man, you can't sleep on this. In response to their faithfulness, God gave. Right? Like, please don't misunderstand this. There were other young Jewish men who were taken to be in the same position that Daniel and his friends were taken to be in. But because they didn't respond in faith the same way, God didn't give. We're not reading their stories. Because of their faithfulness, God shows up. And because of their faithfulness, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. Get this. He made them wicked smart. That's what that means. He made them crazy smart. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. And you're going to hear next week why that matters. God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. And so you know what I think? I think that all of these men were faithful, but because Daniel took the lead, guess what? God elevated Daniel even more. They all were rewarded in faithfulness. But because Daniel took the lead, God rewarded Daniel in abundance. All of them were wicked smart. All of them were meaningful. All of them understood and had all of this wisdom. But because Daniel, this is kind of foot in the water faith. Daniel, like the three friends, they just went along with Daniel. They agreed with Daniel. They supported Daniel. But they weren't the ones knocking down the chief of staff's door. They weren't the ones cornering the attendant to say, look, man, test us in this. Daniel had what we would call that ridiculous foot-in-the-water faith. He acted and trusted that God would respond. And because he took the lead, I believe that's why Daniel is given the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. And the king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as they did. So they entered the king's royal service, and whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Because God specializes in responding to ridiculous faith. 
He honored their faith by bringing them from last to first. That's what Jesus says, right? God rewards faith with the opportunity to do more. That's the way that this works. It is ridiculous faith. All right, so here's what we're going to do. And I know that we've lingered a little, a, a little bit here, but we're going to do this. And, and there's going to be great value in it because we're going to take communion together. And the idea of faith is simply this. When I trust in faith, ultimately what I'm doing is I'm trusting God for something that I can't do. When I trust God to help me forgive when I don't want to forgive because I've been hurt, what I'm doing is I'm trusting God to help me do what I naturally can't do, what my human nature fights against. When I'm asking God to help me um, when I'm grieving the loss of someone that I love, my human nature fights it. It wants to hold on to the grieving of this loss. But, but God in faith shows me a way past that. When, when, I, when, when I am destined to spend an eternity in hell because I'm sinful and broken, in faith, back to the straw, God provides me a way. Faith is God specializing in doing things that we can't do for ourselves. And when you have ridiculous faith, you are constantly trusting God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And there is no better symbol of that than communion. Because communion is where we celebrate God doing something for us that we absolutely could not do for ourselves. See, the Bible teaches us, I'll ask the men to come up and prepare to serve communion. Uh, the Bible teaches us that we are, because we are born in this broken world, that we have a nature of sin. And the nature of sin is in us. And what happens what happens is that that sin nature separates us from God. You and I lack the ability, no matter what good things we ever do, no matter how good we are, right? Like I could be Mother Teresa and Gandhi and who else is a really good guy? Joe that lives down the street from me. I could be like those three guys all pushed, or well, she's a, it doesn't matter, all pushed into one. I mean, that's a good person. You could be a great person, and guess what? You are separated from God because your nature is sin, and God can't look on sin. No matter what you do, you can't get yourself to God. But God specializes in doing for us things that we can't do for ourselves. That's what faith is. So he sends Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who lives a perfect life, who dies a sinner's death so that he will pay the penalty for my sins and for your sins, and then he is resurrected from the dead to conquer death once and for all so that when we, go back to Galatians, when we believe in him, that we are saved by grace through that faith. And that faith pushes us to good works. That's how this works. That's what we celebrate. That's what communion is. It is God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves.